0: Darkcast network where the light shines brightest on our indie
1: podcasts
0: this podcast contains adult themes and language and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners in this podcast we discuss sexual assault torture race and murder listener discretion is advised
1: Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 159. Vuiti, binafi, and bienvenidos, bitches. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cis, able-bodied, white dudes. What? No, there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating life lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist,
0: <laughs> allegedly <laughs> and we are wendy and beth she's wendy a black latinx woman and i'm beth and i just happen to be white and it's not her fault we forgive her <laughs> we're not journalists investigators or psychologists just a couple of gals interested in true crime also the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that our opinions please send any questions or comments to fruit loops pod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at
1: 602-935-6294 Nailed it. (laughs) And we
0: may feature it on a future episode.
1: That's right. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. Patron. (laughs) Uh, You can
0: also support us by supporting our sponsors. So who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about the Bouncing Ball Killer, a serial killer active in the 60s, in the Los Angeles area. This subject was suggested to us by Laura, who, while researching her genealogy, found several murders in her extended family tree. Oh, me, oh, my. Yeah, and there was a connection to Raymond Clemens, who has been identified by some as the bouncing ball killer. And uh, this episode was researched by Minnie.
1: All right, hip hop air horns for Minnie. Yeah. One second. <laughs> Thank you, Minnie and Laura. Yeah. So before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing good. Uh, It was a really busy day today. Yeah, it was. We had we had a lot to do. Yeah. Um. Summer is about to start. It's about to be a hot girl summer. Yeah. Um. Except Rona is creeping up again. Yeah. It's starting Uh, to surge again. Yeah. So we just have to be careful. And um. I have been practicing self-care, and I'm not going to lie. You know what my self-care was this week? What's that? About a new vibrator. And boy, (laughs) oh boy, I am on cloud nine. (laughs) Wow. So I'm just, you know, I'm a big proponent of self-care, y'all. So do what you got to do. Yes, that is (laughs) self-care. Sleep
0: and vibrators. Amen. (laughs) So we should mention that we are going on a break in June. Yes. And uh, so we'll have one more episode after this one and then we'll be on break for the entire month of June.
1: Yes. Although we will
0: have something for you to listen to.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So So stay tuned. Um, Thanks for rocking with us all this time. Thanks for sticking with us through our break and we'll see when we get back. Yeah. But until then, you're going to have to listen to this episode. (laughs) So now let's get into some h- listener h- letters.
0: Well, hello, Angel. Oh, yes. yes. Mm-mm. What's in that bag, Beth? Well, we got an email from Emily who mm. was listening to the New York Zodiac episode, and at <sighs> the en- <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and at the <laughs> end, we said, "For a court-appointed attorney, he was pretty good," or something like that.
1: Yeah, and I'm pretty sure I said it. Yeah. yeah well. So, so, it was, it was said. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. And Emily is an attorney and she said that the myth that private attorneys are better than court appointed attorneys is a real problem that may mm. actually makes her job on appointed cases harder. She mm. goes on to say there are some bad lawyers taking cases they shouldn't take, but they're mm-hmm. just as likely to charge the market average as work for state rates. Generally, when the public defenders are conflicted out of a case, the court appoints a private attorney to work at the state rate. We do Mm. this because we care. That free mm. lawyer they are getting is often someone others are paying 200 to $600 an hour for the same representation. Mm. We do wow. it because we want to help. The idea that we would treat our appointed clients differently is insulting, but more importantly, it makes them less likely to accept our advice. When mm. we tell our clients they should not testify and the answer we get is, I'm going to hire a real attorney. <laughs> mm. It breaks wow. my heart. I can't mm. represent people who don't trust me in And I can usually win them over with a preliminary hearing, but it would be so much better if we could stop pretending appointed counsel is any worse than private counsel. Think of serial. Adnan's Mm -hmm. attorney was awful and she Mm -hmm. charged them tons of money. You have Mm. to evaluate your attorney on the merits, not whether they're willing to help for free or reduced fees. And I think that's a really good point.
1: That is. No, I'm really glad she shared that point. Um, I will also say that, um, this is one of those elements in our, uh, legal ju- legal, criminal system. Right. That I, I'm trying not to say criminal justice, or justice system because it's not, it's really not a justice system, especially if you're BIPOC and poor or marginalized in right. any other way. Um, and so thank you, Emily, first of all, for doing the work that you do. Yeah. Thank you for reaching out to us and um, for setting giving us straight. your perspectives. Yeah. yeah. And setting us straight. Um, I'm My criticism was not intended at the profession. It's the system. So. Yeah. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing, and, and we need more Emilys need in the world. We need more but Emilys, for sure. We also need to burn this whole system to the, to the ground, ground and start something. <laughs> and fill it with Emilys. That, <laughs> fill it with Emilys. Exactly. Exactly. Um. So thank you for that. And we welcome more um discussion. Yeah. You know where to find us. Hashtag Fruit Loops Pod or on our discussion group on Facebook. Yeah. So we got a Kofi donation, which I forgot about to do last week. So Gabriela, I am sorry. She is also a fan of The smoke which we've um, shouted out before on the show. And that's how she found us. Oh, cool. Um, and so this is for you, Gabriella. Thank you, Gabriela, Ella, 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 eh, eh, eh. Thank you, Gabriella. Ella, Ella, eh, 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 eh. eh, eh, eh. Thank you so much for yeah. supporting our show. Yeah, thank you that's for you. (laughs) Uh, So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject
0: today? Today we're talking about the Bouncing Ball Killer, Mm. a serial killer active in the 60s in Los Angeles.
1: All right. Well, let's get into some steer. Okay. (laughs) All right. So those who were victims of or attacked um, by this particular killer were mostly older women. And the murders attributed to the bouncing ball killer were Rest in Power Queens, Ruth Gwyn, 57, and Cotter, 60, Elmira Miller, 74, Bessie Green, 60, Grace Altamore, 80, Mercedes Langeron, 73, Nina Theoren, 19, and there were other murders, um, and we'll get into that later. Shirley Payne, 52, Margaret Briggs, 53, Lena ben 84, Modi Hall, 38, and her granddaughter was also murdered, Mary Foster, age 10. And there's one additional victim. Again, we'll get into it later. Magdalena
0: Parra was 49 who survived. So now it's time for the setting. Take us there, Beth. The setting is Los Angeles, California, between 1959 and 1960. And 1960 was the year that Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho came out, based on the 1959 book, which was inspired by Ed Gein, a white serial killer and one of the more famous ones who had been apprehended just in 1957, so three years before.
1: Oh, OK. And I wouldn't have known about Ed Gein if it had not been for my friend, the OG of true crime. Uh, <laughs> look it up. Uh, so at this time, the police and the public did not have a very good understanding of serial killers. They didn't even call them serial killers yet. So this concept was absolutely terrifying and led to people creating and telling killer stories. Stories, much like ghost stories to scare their friends. I mean, who doesn't like a good scare, eh? Right? Uh, so <laughs> in 1960, suburbia was becoming disturbia. It's a thief in the night to come and grab you. It's a creep up inside you and consume you. A disease of the mind that can control you. It's too close for comfort. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> sorry.
0: <laughs> good one. Thanks. Thanks Minnie. <laughs> so now we have a little story from Minnie. Ooh, she says, I love these. Fun story. Is it fun? Okay. Okay. <laughs> a good okay. story. Anyway. Um, now I'm scared. She says, So when Beth and I were really little and living in California, and uh, Minnie was probably around five at this time, and I was around seven. Okay. Anyway, uh, we decided to run away. We told oh. our mom, and uh, she was like, Sure, go ahead. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Get the fuck out of here. Bye. (laughs) I don't think she took us seriously. And I don't think we really understood what it meant anyway. We'd read about it and we thought, oh, that sounds fun. Oh, (laughs) what? Yeah. (laughs) So we packed some things in a pillowcase and headed out to the park down the street. We were probably gone for maybe an hour. And then I'm talking in Minnie's voice now. All I remember is that I fell at least a couple of times. And Beth would put Band-Aids on me every time I did. Oh, so I so had Band-Aids sweet. on me. Why did oh, we bring Band-Aids? Beth.
1: I don't know. But you know why you brought Band-Aids? Because Beth was with you. And all, she's, she's like a master at preparation and making sure everything yeah, is yeah, absolutely you know what? perfect. That's probably
0: true. Even My at camping, age seven. packing skills are on point. That's for sure. Oh, I'll bet. I'll go anywhere with you. Seriously.
1: Because I know I'm going to be all right.
0: When it was time for dinner, our brother, who was maybe nine or ten, was was sent to get us, but we didn't want to go home yet. So to scare us into coming home, he told us there were stabbers in the park. Oh. That came out in the evening. Oh, do you remember this, Beth? <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> it worked, and I was scared of that park for a really long time, even though I didn't know exactly what stabbers were. I just knew <laughs> it was bad and that stabbers would hurt people. So, mm. so anyway, the point of the story is that the lore of killer stories had made its way down to the level of small children telling other small children by that time, early 1970s, mm. also Charles Manson era, yeah. reality and urban legend were intermixed by then, and stories were being told and retold and handed down from person to person, just like ancient myths.
1: Yeah. And even to this day, I'm telling you, uh, I'm thinking Krampus. I'm thinking La Llorona, like the things we tell kids to make them behave and (laughs) go the fuck to sleep. (laughs) So... As we've talked about before on this podcast, the reason for Fruit Loops, well, one of the reasons Fruit Loops even exists is because there is still, to this day, a lack of understanding about serial killers in general. And it even was more so back in 1960. There is a misconception that serial killers are always highly intelligent geniuses. And in 1960, there was a horribly racist belief that still persists among some today that Black people were not capable of being geniuses and that they could not be clever enough to be able to evade detection long enough to kill more than one person.
0: Not that we think it's great that all races can be serial killers. Right. We'd really prefer that serial killers just not. <laughs> Amen. Yes. But we here at Fruit Loops understand that we're all human beings and we're all capable of the same levels of highs and lows, no matter what our race is. We're all capable of genius and we're all capable of evil and jackassery. <laughs>
1: all right. So that said, this was 1960 and racism was rampant in the United States. I would argue you it didn't go anywhere anyway the concept <laughs> of non-white serial killer was unthinkable at the time interestingly this was also the year that richard ramirez was born who would later terrorize california in 1984 to 1985 now we discussed the history of california before on our episode covering richard ramirez but it's worth mentioning a few things
0: Los Angeles sits on the coast of Southern California and was the ancestral home of the Gabrieleno people, the Chumash, and the Taraviam, or Fernandeños.
1: I'm so proud of you for (laughs) pronouncing the Nye
0: letter. It was hard, but I did it. Good job. Good
1: job. See, that's that's my wife, Braniel. She is. She's one of the good ones. Get her get her a plate at the cookout. <laughs> anyway, sadly, in contrast to long romanticized images of early California, the actual experience of Native people in the Los Angeles area from the arrival of the Spanish through the 20th century proved to be a nightmare of subjugation, loss, disease, rape, abuse, and death. Today, most traces of Los Angeles' original people from before the arrival of Europeans are gone.
0: In 1781, the early non-native settlers in Los Angeles included upwards of two dozen Afro-Spanish individuals from the Spanish colonies in California, which was part of New Spain. And Pio Pico, California's last governor under Mexican rule, was of mixed Spanish, Native American, and African ancestry.
1: I remember discussing him in the past, in El Pasado, and being filled with glee that somebody um, of that descent was um, in there. In, position. The, yeah. in that position and part of the history, and we didn't know it until we talked about it on Facebook, yeah. so that's what I was excited about. Very but anyway, cool. Black people and mixed-race individuals did not face legal discrimination until after California was handed over to the United States in 1848. Yeah, a big old fart. (laughs) At that time, many white Southerners who came to California during the Gold Rush, unfortunately, also brought with them their racist attitudes and disgusting ideals.
0: Because many Black people were enslaved until abolition in 1865, few of them migrated to Los Angeles before then. In 1850, there were only 12 Black people registered as residents of Los Angeles. In Mm. 1880, due to the construction of the Santa Fe Railroad, The settlement grew and increased numbers of Black people came to Los Angeles. By 1900, a little over 2,000 African-Americans lived in Los Angeles, the second largest Black population in California. The presence of the Southern Pacific and
1: Transcontinental Railroads meant that Los Angeles, Los Angeles, (laughs) had a relatively high African-American population for a city in the western United States. In 1910, there were approximately 7,600 Black people living there, and the first branch of the NAACP in California was established in Los Angeles in
0: 1913. In the early 20th century, housing segregation was a common practice and many private property deeds explicitly banned owners from selling to anyone Mm -hmm. but white people. The black population did not significantly increase during the first Great Migration.
1: By the way, those housing segregation practices are still still practiced today. They're just way more sneaky about it. Um, So from approximately 1920 to 1955, Central Avenue was the heart of the Black community in Los Angeles with active rhythm and blues and jazz music scenes. Central Avenue also had two all-Black segregated fire stations because, um, by the way, firemen would not respond to Black homes that were engulfed in flames. In the Black community. Mm -hmm. Fire station number three. 30 and Fire Station number 14. Pew, 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 pew.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they were segregated in 1924 and remained segregated until 1956 when the Los Angeles Fire Department was integrated. The listing on the National Register says, "All Black fire stations were simultaneous representations of racial segregation and sources of community pride." In 1928, World War I veteran
1: William J. Powell, a pioneer aviator, a civil rights activist, and a Black Man, founded the Bessie Coleman. Oh, I love to hear her name and see it. Uh, The Bessie Coleman Aero Club. And if you don't know, you got to look her up because she is fascinating. Bessie Coleman Aero Club after Bessie Coleman, the first African-American
0: and first Native American female pilot. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Powell dreamed of African-Americans finding their rightful place in the air age as pilots and mechanics, a vision he called Black Wings. In 1931, he organized the first all-Black air show in the United States for the club in Los Angeles, an event that drew 15,000 visitors. Wow. Yeah, very cool. Powell also established a school to train mechanics and pilots.
1: So awesome. Yeah. Um, That in the face of oppression, when people say they close these doors on BIPOC and Black people and say, you can't come here, you can't do this, you can't come to our schools, Just, you know what? Fine. I'll just make my own. own. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, World War II brought the second Great Migration. Tens of thousands of Black migrants, mostly from Louisiana, Mississippi, Arkansas, and Texas, who left segregated southern states in search of better opportunities in California. The Black population did significantly increase during the second Great Migration.
0: William Parker became the chief of police in 1952. He largely refused to hire Black police officers, and during most of his tenure, those all already on the force were prohibited from having white partners. And uh, it sounds like this guy was a piece of shit.
1: He kind of reminds me of like the LA version of Bull Connor.
0: Bull Connor. Who's Bull Connor? Bull
1: Connor. Eugene Bull Connor was the um, police chief in Alabama, where the in the same city that the four girls were burned, uh, blown oh, up in the geez. church, yeah, um, in uh, 1950 something, um, just before the Montgomery bus boycotts. But wow. he just fiercely defended segregation and abuse of black people just because they were black. Yeah, and that's that's what William
0: Parker reminds me. Yeah, of. yeah. It should also be known that there were KKK members and affiliates in law enforcement within the judiciary and in Los Angeles society, including doctors, teachers, and bankers.
1: Now, by the time of the bouncing ball killer in 1960, things really had not significantly improved for people of color in Los Angeles. And I just um, think of there's images of Los Angeles and around the country at this time where there are white kids hanging out at pools and parks, just having so much fun. And that's the image of los angeles that i think that most people think of right. black people were not, not allowed. allowed in those spaces right um and the spaces that they were forced to integrate rather than the communities white communities having to integrate they just filled up their pools with dirt and yeah, concrete that's, rather than having to share
0: awful This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour a day?
1: Hmm.
0: Spend more time with your kids, go to the Hmm. gym, Hmm. work on a hobby
1: take a nap? (laughs) Can you do all those things in 60 minutes? Just kidding. (laughs) You know, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But what we do with that time, we don't always know. But the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what it is. And therapy can help you figure that out. Find what matters to you most and make it a priority so that you can find the time to do more of it.
0: Yeah. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for everyone. Mm -hmm. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. And I've been in and out of therapy most of my life. Same. And it has had such a positive influence on my life that I honestly do not know who I would be without therapy. And I don't want (laughs) to (laughs) know.
1: I don't want to know either. (laughs) Listen, Bev and I have both used BetterHelp. Yeah. And we love it. And if you are thinking of starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely
0: online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. You can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp.
1: Visit BetterHelp.com fruit today to get 10% off your first month. That's
0: BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot slash fruit.
1: your happy price, Priceline. So let's get into the early life, or at least what we know of this bouncing ball killer. What do you got, Beth?
0: Well, this episode has two main subjects, one black and one white. Ebony, Ebony and ivory. <laughs> oh, no. That was terrible. You know what? what? I am Give us five stars for trying.
1: But anyway, <laughs> Ebony and
0: Ivory, here we go. Yes, so, here we what's go. next? <laughs> the white subject is Henry Adolph Bush, born on December 30th, 1931. Henry was described as having low intelligence. His mother had an epileptic seizure during delivery, and Henry suffered from malnutrition for six weeks following his birth. His mother ended up giving him up.
1: Born Charles C. Hutchinson, he spent the first six years of his life being passed around to various foster homes before he was adopted by his much older half-sister, May E. Bush, and her husband, Henry.
0: He had a malformed jaw and was also described as having anorexia during his childhood and well into adulthood, which affected his appearance. So he was bullied as a child and shunned as an adult. His adoptive mother later said that Henry had never been normal. What
1: is normal? Really? Yeah. Isn't that great? In a world that's so fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What is Is normal? So uh, Henry suffered from headaches in school and had trouble concentrating, so he did not do well. He joined the army but was dishonorably discharged. After that, he became an optical technician and was viewed as an excellent lens polisher and a good employee.
0: Raymond W. Clemens, a black man, was born around 1925, likely in California, but we could not verify. As we've discussed before on this podcast, older records on black folks are often difficult to find, as the record keepers of the times were often white and, well, racism.
1: Yeah. uh, Yeah, I could go into that so much. Um, But anyway, we can only guess as to his upbringing, keeping in mind that 1925 is only 60 years after slavery had been abolished on paper, at least in the United States. And many people at the time still did not value non-whites as human beings, much less a young black child. And although he was Californian, there was still a lot of um, racial problems for Black people in the North and in the West. So don't think that you come away unscathed. Anyway, his childhood
0: was quite likely not stellar. News articles from 1960 often described Raymond as a San Quentin parolee who had served time for rape, burglary, and assault with a deadly weapon, but we couldn't find any details on any of these arrests, nor how long he was in San Quentin, and during which years he was incarcerated there. I can't imagine that it was a positive, formative experience for him.
1: Yeah, no kidding. And can you imagine San Quentin before, like, uh, oh, your God. hustle? I, yeah. <laughs> like... Uh. I, I don't even want to. Yeah. So one article reported that he had a record of criminal assault, which is 1960 terminology for rape dating back to 1944, when Clemens would have been about 19, but we could not verify this. Another article also mentioned that he had been found guilty of felony manslaughter in a hit and run in 1956, when he would have been about 31. But again, we could not verify this. By 1960, he was 36 years old and earning money as a door-to-door Bible salesman. Mm, get your Bibles. Get your Bibles. Your Bibles are here. 50% off. Uh I don't know how. In my head, that's how it went. That's, how, it we're gonna get,
0: that's how we're going to get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. The first attack that was later grouped in with the murders attributed to the Bouncing Ball Killer was on May 28th of 1959. On this night, 57-year-old secretary Ruth Gwynn was walking home when a man jumped out from behind a tree and attacked her beating her with a plank, Mm -hmm. fracturing her skull, and dragging her to a parking lot where he raped her and abused her with a broken wine bottle.
1: When neighbors began to respond to her screams and intervene, he ran away, telling them, quote, it's none of your business, unquote. Ruth lived long enough to tell police what had happened to her, but succumbed to her internal injuries the next day.
0: Neighbors described the attacker as being in his late 20s, 5 foot 5 and about 130 pounds. His race wasn't reported, which is weird. Yeah, 7 years earlier, Ruth had also been attacked and shot in the back. By a person who had never been caught. That's interesting. Uh, I feel really bad for, for this lady.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Same. Um, and also, race not reported yeah. is
0: so strange. Strange. Yeah. It leads me to believe he was white. Or um, Ruth was black. And Ooh, yeah. So yeah. they just, you know, yeah, didn't, I don't yeah,
1: know. Didn't give those details because Ruth may not have mattered if she was black. Right. Right. Exactly. On February 10th, 1960, Ann Cotter, a 60-year-old nurse, was killed early in the morning as she walked Church at Washington Boulevard and 10th Avenue.
0: On May 2nd, 1960, 74-year-old Elmira Miller, described as a semi-invalid, was found murdered in her home.
1: On May 13th, 1960, Bessie Green, age 60, was found strangled in her apartment. Newspaper articles from the Times say that she was also criminally attacked, which translates to being raped in modern reporting terminology. She was robbed as well. On
0: June 16th, 1960, the movie Psycho was Was released in theaters across the U.S. and the public was enthralled. It features a famous scene where a woman is stabbed to death in a shower. And Psycho is considered by some to be the first in the slasher film genre. There were queues around the blocks to see the movie in cities all across the U.S.
1: I was just gonna say a little culture corner here. Welcome. Um, Black people, by the way, love horror movies. And since the beginning of film, Black people have been creating and participating in the genre, but not necessarily given the opportunities or roles in those films. Psycho is considered italicized to be the first (laughs) slasher film in its genre because it was created by a white man and other white men saw it and they said, oh, this is important. This is the first one, so
0: yeah. So um, there were movies created by all black people, mm-hmm. black directors, black actors, black producers, and it's interesting because they called them race films, just like yeah. they called the music back then, race music. You know, yeah. the black music. Yeah, but I didn't know that. I didn't know that there were these films, and oh, I, interesting. I actually did try to find see if there were some. Um, slasher films before psycho and i couldn't find any um i mean the black films but i you know i i just did a quick search and i mm-hmm. i didn't see any uh, well, are you aware of any
1: uh it's called like Ingo or, or something like that. There is an all black cast all black produced horror film but then I thought about the definition of slasher film. It may have been a horror film but it may not have been necessarily a, a slasher, slasher film. film. Yeah so,
0: so Psycho really isn't a slasher film either but it's considered like a precursor and there was one movie before it called Peeping Tom mm-hmm. about a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, only not called a serial killer mm-hmm. but it was British so I think uh. this was the one the psycho was the one in the u.s yeah uh the first slasher uh-huh. film but there's, i don't really know because there's probably a lot of black films out there that we don't know about
1: yeah and there's a whole there's there is a whole canon there's a whole like um section that has been curated by By other people like you and me who are uh, interested in this stuff who are like, this doesn't exist in the zeitgeist. so we need to create it. And they created a really good – yeah, there's a documentary. And I think I cited it in the show notes or at least I cited an article – that okay. refers to
0: it in the show notes. So very cool. Um, Thank they're you. out there.
1: Yeah. Right on.
0: So on June 20th, 1960, Grace Altamore, aged 80, was found having been attacked, robbed, and strangled in a similar manner to Bessie. OK, so the police should be onto to something.
1: Yeah. Um, on June 26th, 1960, Mercedes Langeron, age 73, was found gagged with the corner of a bedsheet and strangled to death in her home. Also, quote, criminally attacked, end quote, and robbed. She was found by her roommate, Adela Williams, who was 75 at the time, although some articles gave differing ages.
0: Adela said that she had seen a black man, about age thirty, six foot tall and a hundred and fifty five pounds, bouncing a white rubber ball in her apartment when she arrived home from the store, and she'd confronted him. After he left the apartment, she found her roommate dead in the bedroom. What a weird experience.
1: Oh my God. The creepiest. And, yes. and that is probably why this story is so, um, I don't know, it just sticks with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. So it's like a popcorn kernel that sticks in your teeth. This story won't go <laughs> away. She said, quote, the killer shuffled out of the bedroom, crouching low, bouncing a rubber ball. He looked at me. Then without a word, he calmly walked out the front door, still bouncing the ball, his black hair hanging in a tangle over his eyes, unquote. Creepy! took my breath away. I'm dead. (laughs) (laughs) I'm deceased. This is my ghost again.
0: (laughs) The police assumed that this man was the attacker of the other older women as well and created a composite sketch from Adela's description of him. The composite included a hairstyle that was either naturally straight or had been straightened.
1: It's interesting because the other guy was small.
0: Yeah, <laughs> five he was like high five. five. Yeah, yeah. And
1: this guy is six like foot six, six foot. Six?
0: Yeah. And the, the weights were different too. So.
1: But okay, Uh, so back to the hairstyle. This was not an uncommon hairstyle for a black man in the 1960s, who in an effort to hide their natural hair texture and assimilate into white society for their survival, you know, getting jobs and employment and stuff like that, was referred to in the newspapers at the time as gassed hair. Uh, The composite showed hair groomed into a hairstyle
0: popular with Ivy League men
1: at the time.
0: In some articles, he was also described as wearing Ivy League style clothing and or wearing an Ivy League. Ivy League cap with a buckle in the back. And uh, I'm picturing one of those tweed newsboy style caps that looks a bit like a beret with a brim. Yeah. Um,
1: it's a really distinct style, which, you yeah. know, is, uh, I think anybody can close their eyes and, and sort of imagine it. But imagine it yeah. a little culture corner, I think people might not be aware that it is really big in Black culture, um, the Ivy League style. Um, and Black history at black ivy league culture is a particularly fly style seen and started by black men at black ivy league schools um and this was this came to my mind because it was in the news recently when ralph lauren did a collaboration with a black um creator named james jeter who was a morehouse man and um ralph lauren this was after uh, george floyd was murdered ralph lauren was like oh my gosh what I didn't know that racism existed. And this black man and his company was like, let me just show you how stylish black people have been since the beginning. And he showed him, um, a yearbook from like Morehouse and Spelman. And these black people were dressed in these Ivy league styles. And I, and Ralph Lauren was like, I had no idea. Um, and so he allowed this man to create something that, um, or recreate something that had been in the black zeitgeist for a long time. Wow. Um, um, and it's, you know, it's the preppy style and black people do what uh, black people do, added our swag to it. Um, and swag and style is just a big part of black cult- culture across the diaspora. We take what we got, which often is not much, and we make it hot <laughs> to, defy, <laughs> to defy stereotypes while asserting our identity and confidence. And so this man who was described this way, I my in my imagination was was acting this out. So as segregation right. pulled back a little bit, black people ended up being admitted to these Ivy League schools where white people were dressing preppy and black people assimilated to try to fit in. But over time, as I said, added their own swag and swagified it. And, you know, the black experience comes with a lot of adversity and clothing has always been a way that black people can express ourselves. So I, it is a huge culture corner. There's so many articles and literature written about this that's why I couldn't Stay leave away it out it. Yeah. When, when somebody, when Minnie noted the um, Ivy League description Ivy League of song. the man. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. The ball that the man was bouncing would have been a small rubber ball around the size of a tennis ball, sometimes called a bouncy ball that mm-hmm. was used and maybe still is mm-hmm. to play street games like stickball. Mm. The attacks on Bessie, Grace, and Mercedes all happened within a few miles of each other near the University of Southern California, well outside of the downtown core in western Los Angeles.
1: Um have you ever heard that uh, USC, University of Southern California is also called the University of Spoiled Children? <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's good. I yeah. like it. Because <laughs> there's a lot, I mean, a lot of r- rich a lot kids of rich go kids there go and there, yeah. have throughout time. So it also yeah. makes sense that the preppy style was adopted there too. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, on um, June 29th, 1960, the Mirror News, a Los Angeles newspaper, referred to the attacker as the rubber ball strangler and reported that psychiatrists were speculating that, quote, another killer like Stephen Nash, unquote, might be at large. Now, Stephen Nash, Thank you for this description because I had no idea was a white, quote unquote, thrill killer who had been executed in Los Angeles on August 21st of 1959. So was fresh in the memory of the public and likely to elicit panic. You mean they did the elicited panicking on purpose? (laughs) Get out of (laughs)
0: here. In the article, a clinical professor of psychiatry was quoted to explain the killer bouncing the ball as, quote, subconscious way of expressing deep resentment against the society that condemns the activities of anybody who deviates from what is considered the norm, unquote. (laughs) He even went so far as to analyze why he chose the ball that he did and how it might relate to his urges for deviant sex and murder.
1: (laughs) I was wondering where people got, like, online conversations kind of degrees before (laughs) there was online. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Like, yeah, um, I was correspondence.
0: You know, actually, they had you could get degrees uh, through correspondence, like through the mail.
1: You could just write a letter and say, "Send me a degree."
0: No, no, you would have to take classes, but it was through the mail. Like they would send oh, you stuff. And, oh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, I was That's, just wondering. That was the old version of online degrees. Oh,
1: okay, <laughs> I mean, I just this seems like so many grasping at straws. Straws, uh, yeah, his for arms sure. Must be tired at. (laughs) after so much grasping because this
0: is hilarious
1: yeah so another another psychiatrist was reported in in the article to basically equate any kind of obsessive compulsive activity like hand washing or ball bouncing to a quote guilty expiation pattern and i don't know what that word means um but it comes from the need to go back to an innocent childhood by engaging in a quote Childish game, unquote. I'm so glad that we now have a better understanding of obsessive-compulsive type activities. And amen, yeah. hip-hop air hordes. to that. I have yeah. slime, squishy <laughs> balls, fidgets all, <laughs> all over my, my house, things. and they help yeah. all of us tremendously. We don't kill people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so balls like these, as well as smaller bouncy balls, were that generation's equivalent of fidget spinners. Aha. Uh-huh. It wasn't that unusual for someone to have a ball like this and play with it as they walked around. There was a bit of a stigma against older people doing this, but it's normal human behavior, really, and not just for children.
1: Absolutely. Now, this was two years before the Duncan yo-yo became popularized. Uh, The toy. Right. Right. Okay, which then took over as uh, the more popular fidget spinner style toy, though handheld bouncing balls still remained popular for many
0: years. So yet another psychiatrist in that article (laughs) 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 suggested that the bouncing ball might show a, quote, bottomless pit of hatred for women, wow. unquote, because wow. of the softness of the shape of the ball, wow. <laughs> and went on to discuss the hatred that many men have towards their mothers. Wow. <laughs> it's, <laughs> man, it's all about mom hating sex and boobs with these 1960s psychiatrists, wow. isn't it? Wow. <laughs> yeah, it is. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar.
1: I wish that, this song popped into my head. It's raining shrinks. Hallelujah, <laughs> hallelujah. It's raining shrinks.
0: Amen.
1: <laughs> Because <laughs> they just oh got all God. the strings to say all the things, all and none of them make any yeah. sense to me. They're nuts. Uh, They're on nuts.
0: June, <laughs> on June 30th,
1: 1960, Mirror News again referred to the attacker as the rubber ball killer slash strangler, and by then, the name had stuck. Police had released the composite sketch of the man and asked for help from the public. More than 100 people have come forward to, or had come forward to say they recognized him, some saying they knew him
0: and others saying they had just spotted him. On July 2nd, 1960, Noble Harper, a 35-year-old black man, employed as a bus washer, was arrested on suspicion of murder after witnesses reported him for bouncing a small white rubber (gasps) ball while at the market in L.A. So, (laughs) yeah, that's nuts.
1: (laughs) Wow, you could get, wow, targeted for bouncing a ball. Oh, my God bouncing a ball unbelievable so noble told the police quote man you got me all wrong you just don't get enough exercise working these days so i bounce a ball for exercise unquote and apparently being black and bouncing a ball was enough to get you charged with murder at the time you know how they say (laughs) driving while black bouncing while black is his crime now he was cleared as a suspect the following day and i hope somebody apologized to him though i somehow
0: doubt it yeah yeah From there, the idea of the bouncing ball killer made its way into the arena of urban legends. None of the previous reports of murders mentioned the attacker playing with a rubber bouncing ball before, during, or after the killing. And some detectives at the time didn't even think that all of the killings we've discussed so far were necessarily linked, maybe just a couple of them.
1: I don't do this often, but I kind of agree with the detectives. But the image of the bouncing ball killer was so creepy... (laughs) Yes, it was. Yeah, yes, it girl. Is. Yeah, that okay. Caught, yeah, true. <laughs> it caught the imagination of the puf- public and took off from there like wildfire. Subsequent murders of older women were later blamed on this mystery killer as well. Whether or not a bouncing ball was reported to be part of the attack or not. Now, um, <laughs> I just have a little conspiracy corner because y'all know I love a good conspiracy, specifically <laughs> the black ones. So that, have you ever heard of the Illuminati? Specifically yeah. Specifically the black Illuminati. Maddie. No. Okay, so we all know (laughs) that conspiracy theories exist because they explain something for us. They give us digestible answers to very hard questions. So um, that's also true in Black culture. So the Illuminati, or as Kid Fury on one of my favorite podcasts, The Read refers to it, the Nigalati, is (laughs) a conspiracy theory uh, that generally is about how wealthy, powerful Black people like Oprah, Beyonce, Tyler Perry, and Jay-Z have basically sold their souls or been abducted by aliens to manipulate society (laughs) media and politics (laughs) the list is much longer than that but those are just a handful so famously this is one of my favorite ones and it's long there's so much more to it but famously beyonce and jay-z are central figures to the black illuminati lore so who run the world illuminati and then beyonce she she if you listen to her lyrics she confirmed because she said Y'all hate us corny with that Illuminati mess. Stalin. And one theory is that Beyonce there's a theory that Beyonce is a robot and that I've heard that one. Her sister Solange actually carried her children. And there's another that Beyonce's alter ego Sasha Fierce is Satan, <laughs> and f- further that there uh, this one is a stretch. I don't buy it, but it's out there in the Black Illuminati lore that there can only be one queen in the Illuminati, which is why Aaliyah had to die. Uh, and Beyonce took her place like at, mm. at the top. So, right. um, you know, and, and one conclusion that I thought was really interesting in black conversation about these theories, which are, you know, fun, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie, is that in particular with what, with black people in general, just because of our history in this country, but with black women also like Beyonce and Oprah, it's hard to believe that these women could become so successful on their own merit. So there has to be another explanation for it. There has to it. be another reason.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so
1: this has gone off the rails, but I just wanted to talk about <laughs> the niggalati with my fruities out there.
0: Interesting. <laughs> uh, so anyway... <laughs> So on July 10th, 1960, a San Diego man named Ray Williams was booked on suspicion of being the bouncing ball killer because he resembled the composite sketch. A bricklayer who had been in Los Angeles in June when Mercedes was killed, Ray Williams also wore shoes similar to those worn by the man who Mercedes' roommate Adela had seen, the bouncing ball killer killer the guy who had been bouncing the ball right okay right the creepy we, the creepy yeah, one. yeah the creepy one yeah we couldn't find any further mention of ray williams uh so he hopefully was released we don't know yeah
1: I I hate to say it, at, the, at this at this point in time in American history, it wasn't uncommon for law enforcement to just apprehend a black man and say something along the lines of, well, you're a black person, so you might not have done this crime, but you probably did another one. You're good one. for so, some. Yeah, yeah, you're going to jail. On July 12th, 1960, police answered a call placed from the City College campus in Los Angeles about a woman screaming. They arrived to find Clemens getting into his car nearby and stopped him for questioning. There were schoolbooks scattered on the sidewalk near the car and in his car, they found a woman's purse. So they searched the surrounding area.
0: Eventually, they found the body of Nina Thorin, a young white woman and a student at the college, stuffed under an unfinished building. Mm. Nina had been working nights at a bookstore that was within walking distance from her room near the college. She would often study at the bookstore after it closed in the evening and then would walk home from there
1: wow you can't even we can't even just walk walk, walk alone home. yeah um so now we're gonna get into the investigation and the arrest so while in police custody Clemens confessed to the murder and described the event apparently Clemens had noticed Nina who he described as a pretty brunette walking down the street and offered her a ride home. She had initially refused, but he persisted and she finally agreed to get into the car.
0: He drove her near the campus and parked, then tried to make advances towards her. He insisted that he didn't rape her, and the autopsy actually confirmed this. Mm. He said that he did try to make a move to kiss her, but she ran, so he pursued. He said that he grabbed her, overpowered her, and pulled off her pants and underwear, but she was screaming so much that he ended up strangling her with her red capri pants in order to quiet her so he may not have raped her but he was going to yeah (laughs) i think yeah i think
1: Yeah. yeah um so he also said that at one point after she got in the car she made a comment about him being the bouncing ball killer and he said quote Sure, I'm the bouncing ball killer. Look in the glove compartment. The ball is there. Unquote. Oh my God. I'm
0: sure. I'd have made a best size hole in the door.
1: Yeah. I just close my eyes to imagine a Kool-Aid guy <laughs> named <laughs> Beth, yeah, running through the car. Running
0: through the car, uh, down the street.
1: Wow. No, Fair that is that is really crazy. I, I just imagine that statement must have been in a lot of newspapers. Um, yeah. There was no report of a ball actually being found in his glove box. Sounds more like he was just making a flippant remark.
0: It was reported that the bouncing ball murder stopped when Clemens was arrested, but after police administered a lie detector test, they concluded that he didn't have guilty knowledge of the other murders, so he wasn't linked to or booked for them, just for the attack and murder of Nina.
1: What about the other ones? So keep in mind, though, that lie detector tests are now considered bullshit. The concept (laughs) of lie detection has had an interesting history. Earlier societies, and some still today, mainly used torture to extract quote-unquote truth. And we hope by now that the majority of people understand that what you get from torture is someone who will say whatever the fuck they need to, to make the torture stop. Yeah. And it may or may not be the truth.
0: Yeah. I'll tell you anything, whatever you want to know, whatever
1: <laughs> you want to know. Yeah. I, that's yeah. Why I'm so baffled that there's still people. We had this conversation earlier today. Pe- still people who believe that if somebody confesses, it must,
0: it's, they must it have it done must it. must be it's true. Solid. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. There were several different early devices for scientific lie detection beginning in 1895. In 1906, a project by American William Moulton Marsden, who styled himself as the father of the polygraph, used blood pressure to examine German prisoners of war, which indicated a strong positive correlation between systolic blood pressure and lying.
1: Today, he is often equally or more so known as the creator of the comic book character Wonder Woman. <laughs> Whoa. Which is <laughs> blowy, mind blown. Uh and it never occurred to me before that Wonder Woman's lasso of truth is effectively a lie detector.
0: Yeah. Okay. Never never really thought about it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so here we get another story from Minnie. Okay. Looking forward. All right. I'm Minnie now. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Here's where I tell the follow up story of when I was held up at Knife Point when working at the convenience store. Go on. Sometime after this event, I can't recall how long after, maybe weeks, maybe months, we had a new employee, a white guy. Okay. Let's call him Doofus. Okay. Who was taking over the night shift. I covered 3 p.m. to 11 Mm p.m. I was training Doofus and we were chatting and I told him the story of how I was robbed. We joked about it from then on, you know, how I like to keep things funny. Mm -hmm. And one night when I I was leaving my shift as Doofus was starting his. I said, don't get robbed as a goodbye for the (laughs) night. (laughs) I wasn't supposed to be working for the next couple of days, so I was surprised when the manager called me the next day. Turns out she was calling to tell me that they needed all the employees to go take polygraph tests before they could come back to work because Doofus had been robbed. Oh, no. I was terrified, of course, because I feel guilty about everything, whether I'm guilty or not. Santa same Maria girl. mini <laughs> and i had said don't get robbed before i left that night but i ended up going to the test i was panicked during the test but i must have passed as they let me come back to work later it got out that doofus had actually faked being robbed <gasps> no i guess my story of the robbery before had planted an idea in his stupid stupid head <laughs> He he had tried to get into the safe and failed. So what he ended up doing instead was taking money out of the money changer behind the counter in front. It would let you get smaller bills or coins out to make change every two minutes. And you didn't have to put any money in to get change. So he pressed the button every two minutes until he got all the money out. (laughs) Sir, oh no. They said later that it must have taken him hours to do that. Oh, so, no. He was just working the counter, serving customers, and pressing the button every couple oh, of Oh,
1: no, <laughs> He sir. also took
0: all the money from the registers, any cash the customers gave him, and he broke into the manager's office and stole the VCR that was part of the new security system that I told him about, hoping that they wouldn't be able to figure out it was him. <laughs> once he got everything stashed not sure where he did that he tied himself up in the office to try to make it look like he'd been attacked oh my god he also hit himself on the head and sodomized himself with a broom handle for the realness factor oh my god yes really oh my god (laughs) and waited for someone to find him what a doofus was
1: this in arizona Yeah, this Man, is bad. Arizona. Man, that heat
0: makes people do crazy, <laughs> crazy things. Crazy, Yeah. <laughs> So he didn't even get to the lie detector test. He broke down and spilled the whole story before they could even hook him up. Oh, no. (laughs) I don't think you can say the lie detector test worked except that threatening to make him take one did scare the truth out of him. Kind of like a lasso of truth, I guess. Uh, I
1: guess so. (laughs) And you know what? I, I wonder if perhaps that is the motivation behind continuing to offer them is that, um, just the idea of offering the idea. it. Might, yeah, make... I know
0: that they that the police will ask people to take lie detector tests. And if they don't, if they refuse to take it, then they become a Their suspect. Their refusal
1: is suspicious. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, OG. And thank you, Minnie. Oh my yeah, what God. A story. Wow. Sodomizing <laughs> <laughs> yourself. Oh my I, God. I just I I can't. I mean I can't. <laughs> uh I was going to get into like the sick things that I watch on the internet and I have seen scenes like this. Oh jeez. In porns. Um I love porn. Um and uh anyway, uh you know, it uh it's uh wow. I just I don't have any words and I also uh Now I feel like you know more about me than you did before. Anyway, despite (laughs) claims, and about many too, uh, despite claims by advocates that polygraph tests are between 80 to 90% accurate, who in their right mind would believe that? The National Research Council has found no evidence of its effectiveness. The American Psychological Association states, quote, most psychologists agree that there is little evidence that polygraph tests can accurately detect lies, unquote. Nobody can detect lies, can they? I mean, no. you, can, you can have a feeling, but nothing yeah, is certain. No, n-
0: nothing is certain. Yeah. The polygraph failed to catch Gary Ridgway, the Green River killer. Another suspect allegedly failed a lie detector test, whereas Ridgway passed. Oh. Ridgway confessed almost 20 years later when confronted with DNA evidence.
1: Wow. 20 years later. Yeah. Wow. So in Wichita, Kansas in 1986, Bill Weggerly was suspected of murdering his wife, Vicky Weggerly, because he failed two polygraph tests. In March of 2004, evidence surfaced connecting her death to the serial killer known as BTK. And in 2005, DNA evidence confirmed that Dennis Radar, AKA BTK, killed Vicky, exonerating Bill Weggerly. But God, he had been in
0: prison. He was just a suspect. Oh, he wasn't. Yeah. Li- he wasn't uh it doesn't look like he was uh, in prison or anything. But okay. Okay. He was suspected, which can be really bad. Yeah. I mean, people stop talking to you. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You could lose your job. You know, yeah. all kinds of stuff can happen.
1: Yeah. And if, when if you're if the, a
0: murder suspect, you know. Right.
1: Right. And if you are, um, you know, unfortunate enough to get wrapped up in a prosecutor's mind as the guilty yeah. party,
0: yeah. then you're you're fucked until and not only that, but his wife died. You yeah. Know? Yes. It's horrible. Yes. Thank you, Beth. Yeah. So let's just put it out there. Maybe Raymond Clemens was a serial killer and was able to pass the lie detector test. Maybe the killing stopped when he was arrested because he was in fact the killer. Or Maybe he only killed Nina, whereas another person or persons was responsible for the other killings. Or maybe the killings didn't stop.
1: They didn't. It was the <laughs> 60s, y'all. They didn't stop. They did not stop. People were still killed. <laughs> People are still, oh, my God, I hate that um, argument when it pops up. Well, the crime stopped, so we got him. And it's never, <laughs> ever true. Um at least in my eyes, anyway, I, I, I'm just a gal interested in true crime, so I don't know anything. but anyway, after after Clemens was cleared by the lie detector of being the bouncing ball killer, public fear of this killer continued to grow, and additional murders were later linked in the public mind to this boogeyman
0: on September fourth, nineteen sixty. Henry Adolf Bush went to his adoptive mother's apartment but she was not there. Bush then spoke with 52-year-old Shirley Payne, who lived in the apartment above, and invited her to go see the movie Psycho with him at the local theater.
1: After the movie, Bush invited her back to his apartment where they drank beer and, according to Bush, had sex. Bush later said that when Shirley was getting ready to leave, he suddenly felt an urge to kill her, so he strangled her to death. He bought a sleeping bag, placed Shirley's body in it, and tied it shut with a rope. He kept the sleeping bag inside his apartment.
0: Mm -hmm. The next day on September 5th, 1960, Bush took a knife and went to the apartment of 53-year-old Margaret Briggs, a half-sister of his adoptive mother. Bush viewed Margaret as an aunt and often sought her advice. He later said he'd considered telling her about killing Shirley, but decided not to.
1: The two watched television together for some time. Then Bush got another one of his urges and ended up strangling Margaret as well. According to Bush, Margaret tried to fight him off, and he later said that he told her he was sorry but could not overcome his urge to kill her.
0: Afterwards, he cut off her clothing, cutting her breast in the process. According to the police, there appeared to be cigarette burns and other wounds, including bruises around her body and her scalp, which Bush did not explain. So it doesn't sound like his story was entirely true.
1: Mm, 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 mm. One day later, Bush took Margaret's car keys and drove her car to the factory where he worked. He would sometimes have coffee before work with a fellow employee, Magdalena Parra, but their usual coffee place was closed. So he invited Magdalena to go with him to another place for coffee. But when the two got in the car, Bush suddenly attacked Magdalena, grabbing her by the neck and attempting to strangle her.
0: He is on a tear. Yeah. She managed to fight him off and escaped from the car. Bush tried to start his car but the engine flooded. He then tried to escape on foot, but was caught by two truck drivers. Two officers who arrived at the scene found a knife and a pair of handcuffs in his possession.
1: It's interesting, um, this urge that he gets. Yeah, um to and
0: kill. I, And it was like it's like one after the other. Yeah, like he just I don't know if he killed before, but these three is like one after the other. Yeah. Um and uh, it
1: must it must be a thrill and I I we're covering Sam Little soon y'all yep. so stay tuned. <laughs> but uh, the the investigators were describing when he was talking about strangling like he was physically aroused yeah. and um I just like it, this Ew. made me think of that anyway. Yeah. Um, so as Bush was being driven to a police station, he told the officers that he had killed two women in the past week and offered to lead them to their bodies. As the police investigated these crimes, he then confessed to Elmira Miller's murder, which had occurred back on May 1st of that year and had been attributed to the bouncing ball killer.
0: Oh, he wanted credit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bush had known Elmira since he was a child and had stopped by her house back on May first of nineteen sixty. They'd talked and watched television together. Sounds like T V is a, a Big precursor to, yeah. Yeah, to these murders. Somebody get them a Nielsen box. <laughs> Somebody take this TV away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but as Bush got up to leave, he saw Elmira standing with her back to him, felt an urge to kill her, and strangled her to death. To avoid drawing suspicion, he had pulled Miller's clothing over her hips and tore her
1: underclothing to make the murder appear to be sexually motivated. Miller's body had been found by her visiting doctor the next day.
0: When asked about his motive, he told police, quote, I get very strong urges to kill. What reason does anyone have for strangling anybody? Unquote. Fair point, I guess. You know what? I wouldn't even engage
1: this man in further conversation. I'm out. You like, don't have okay. to worry about me. You ain't got to worry about me. Show enough, I am out of here. Uh, so now we're going to get into the trial. So Henry Adolf Bush was convicted of killing Margaret Briggs, Shirley Payne, and Elmira Miller. Elmira had originally been lumped in with the Bouncing Ball Killer murders. So legend later grew up around Bush being the Bouncing Ball Killer. But being very much a white man, he did not match... Match that description, and I'm trying to think. Five foot, what, no, six foot six. Six foot tall. Or six foot
0: and black. And he was wearing Ivy League clothing. That's right. Um,
1: being the bouncing ball killer.
0: Right. This does not resemble Henry Adolf Bush in any way, shape, or form.
1: Nah. Yeah. Nope. No. Nah. He did not match the description, as we said, of the only man who was actually witnessed bouncing a ball after a murder. He denied murdering anyone other than the three he was convicted of. Though it's possible he did commit more than he confessed to. He
0: He did say at his trial that his urge to kill started when he killed a prisoner of war entrusted to his care while in the military. He said he would normally control these urges and knew that it was wrong. He further said that had he been successful in killing Magdalena, he probably would have continued to satisfy his urge to kill.
1: Mm. So he at one point claimed to have been inspired to kill by seeing the movie Psycho, but since his first known victim, Elmira, was murdered before the release of that movie, to theaters on June 16th, 1960. I'm calling shenanigans on that one. Um, (laughs) Now, this is Minnie speaking. I suspect that uh, he purposefully brought Shirley to see Psycho because he wanted the added enjoyment of watching her react in fear and disgust to the events of the movie. And I think he had very likely seen the movie already and knew it might scare Shirley to see it, which gave him an added element of excitement to his murder of her. I
0: think uh, Minnie's probably on to something I think so
1: too. I think so too.
0: Again, Minnie
1: and Beth, y'all are. (laughs) <laughs> Woo! Hell, hell of a duo.
0: <laughs> Raymond Clemens stood trial for the murder of Nina Thorin and no one else. He was arraigned on July 13, 1960 for the single murder charge after undergoing a four-hour lie detector test. He had a preliminary hearing on July 19, 1960, after which his trial date was initially set for August second, 1960, but later postponed to August third, 1960.
1: By this time, he was no longer considered to be the bouncing ball killer. He was convicted on November 16, 1960 of first degree murder for killing Nina and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Though early release was not ruled out. At the time, those given life sentences in Los Angeles would be eligible for parole after serving 12 years.
0: No one named as the bouncing ball killer has ever been caught or stood trial. There was only one single murder at the time where a man bouncing a rubber ball was seen, yet the legend lives on.
1: On September 6, 1960, the Los Angeles Mirror reported that 84 year old Lena Bensiusen had died from injuries after having been attacked by a man whose description fit that of the rubber ball strangler. In the article, they also mentioned a similar attack on Modi Hall, age 38, and her granddaughter, Mary Foster, age
0: 10, on August 18th. The two had been struck by a blunt instrument while they slept. Lena had also been struck on the head, though there wasn't any mention of anyone being strangled or criminally attacked, so it doesn't seem like this was the bouncing ball killer. A boarder who lived with Marion Modi claimed though to have heard sounds of a bouncing ball when he was woken by the victim's cries. The public had become fascinated with the concept of the bouncing ball killer It is fascinating.
1: Yeah. Uh, The legend was later told and retold changing as it went. One version from the late 1960s told by William Covington, described a bouncing ball man, a clean cut black man who would, if a child left their window open, quote, invite kids to come out and play ball. Mm. Some kids recognized the sound of a bouncing ball and looked out their open windows. The kids who agreed to play would climb out of their bedroom window, follow the culprit away and supposedly were strangled to death. oh geez yeah Yeah. night night kiddos
0: (laughs) (laughs) with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere
1: to win an exclusive merchandise package from evergreen podcasts head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so we can't thank you enough for the support now back to the show listen to mr bunker's conspiracy time podcast it's a fun show about weird stuff new episodes every wednesday yeah eggheads i'm art And I'm Andy. And Mr. Bunker's Conspiracy Time is a podcast about conspiracies, the paranormal, UFOs, unsolved mysteries. We're going to be discussing the Kennedy assassinations. Oh yeah, that's his nickname, Finger-Banging Bob Lazar. Give me some aliens with some good frickin' spacecraft. The whole enchilada. The only thing bigger than Bigfoot's feet are our egos. If you like simulation theory, ancient history, egghead science, and Mandela effect, that kind of stuff. So check it out. New episodes every Wednesday. All the links you need on MrBunkersConspiracyTime.com. And we'll see you in the bunker.
0: Uh, so now we're going to get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. Henry Adolph Bush was executed at San Quentin Prison on June 6, 1962 for the murders of Margaret Briggs, Shirley Payne, and Elmira Miller. He was not the bouncing ball killer. To clarify. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Now,
1: there is a record from 1980 of a Raymond W. Clemens at age 55 marrying a 72-year-old woman on February 9th, 1980 in L.A. County. We couldn't find any additional information on this, if this was him or another Raymond Clemens born and living in Los Angeles at at the same time.
0: We also could not find where or how long Clemens was incarcerated or if he is still alive or not. If he is still alive, he would be 97 or 98 by now. If our subject Clemens was indeed the bouncing ball killer and was obsessed with older women, him marrying a much older woman would make sense or it does. it's not him at all. And this record is just a coincidence.
1: A lot of coincidences, a lot of, a lot of, you know what? There's a lot of holes in the story. And by holes, yeah. I mean places to throw bouncing balls, bouncing <laughs> balls, people. This is look Look alive. There's bouncing balls out there. Be careful because it's crazy out there. Now we're going to get into our takes. What do you got,
0: Beth? So I think this is one of the only few true mysteries we've covered. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Was the bouncing ball killer ever found? Was it Clemens? And if not, who was he? Mm-hmm. Um, Bush's victims were all older women, so and so were the bouncing ball killers. Mm-hmm. Mercedes Langdon was the only one, I think, where there actually was a bouncing ball at the scene. Right, The man was black, and he was bouncing a ball. So if that's bou- the bouncing ball killer, then it could not have been Bush, we, as we've discussed, since Bush right. was white. Mm-hmm. Clemens had only one victim that we know of, and although she was strangled, it was a little different. Uh, she was strangled with her pants. I don't think that was mentioned in any of the other ones yeah she was only 19 mm -hmm. so her age doesn't fit the bouncing ball killer's mo Mm -hmm. so to me it seems likely that the bouncing ball killer was never caught but also that Bush may have been the perpetrator in some of the other murders attributed to the bouncing ball killer.
1: I think that's fair. And uh, I agree with you. This was in it, This was a true mystery um, mm-hmm. and it's not something we cover. So that's, that's exciting. This was also one that uh, thank goodness for our fruity who told us about this case. Yeah. Um, never a, heard of it. Never heard of it. And B it's going to haunt my nightmares for a long time. <laughs> Uh, and it seems uh, to me also that he was never caught, and uh, I this came up because I've been um, re-listening to some new interpretation of the Atlanta child murders documentaries. Oh, right. on right, uh, HBO has a you know HBO has a podcast for every show, so they have a new yeah. podcast. And so anyway, the uh, there was somebody who said, if you don't know who it is, then you also don't know who it's not, right? Which is why the mystery continues and yeah. that's terrifying. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> Luckily this happened a long time ago, so I don't think we have to worry about the bouncing ball killer. We anymore. don't have
1: to worry about that killer, that but guy, this is yeah. America. And the likelihood <laughs> there's, there's of being more coming, yeah. killed killer shot by something is, yeah, is right around true. the corner. So um, another thing that struck out to be where, where the euphemisms for rape, and right. violence against women, um, yeah. which was just, it was just interesting. Well, you don't talk in about mind. that in
0: polite society.
1: Um, so you but, use
0: euphemisms.
1: I guess that's, so. That's
0: how it was back but then. then I, yeah. But the,
1: yeah, I guess. But I, what is so mind boggling to me about <laughs> white society is how civilized white <laughs> society thinks it is. Pretends to when be. When we yeah. know the truth.
0: And, and <laughs> you're using euphemisms. We all know what the euphemisms mean. So what's the yeah. Right. Exactly. So yeah. Exactly.
1: So it's yeah. just, oh, it's getting me hot thinking about it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, that those those were those were my takeaways. So anything else? All right. Nope, that's it. Oh, all right. Well, let's get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs>
0: This segment is not intended to be victim-blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences.
1: So this is just totally off the dome in light of recent news. By now, we all know about the Buffalo shooting um, and the uh, also the shooting in the church in California. And So far, there have been hundreds of mass shootings so far this year. Too many to count. I lost track. Um, So just a reminder to all of us to keep your head on a swivel. Um, Every place you go, make sure you have a plan in case shit goes down. Um, Do drills in your head. I, I, I know I often play in my mind what would i do if there was an assembly apocalypse but now it's changed <laughs> to what would i do if there was a sh- an active shooter uh, yeah. um and discuss these things with your loved ones we have to have conversations about it it's the only way to to, to sort of um be ready um yeah. where are the exits where are the hiding places when you go like I'm, I'm just thinking of a grocery store if the exit is being is blocked by a shooter where, where think of where are you going to yeah. go to hide. Um, what will you use to? What can you use to protect yourself? And where are we going to meet after? Just, just think about it, and then start talking about it. Um, I usually tell my kids when we go to places, don't ask me for anything, don't look at anything, and don't touch anything. All right, let's go. But now I say <laughs> you stay close to me. The code word is blah, blah, blah. And if we get separated, we meet here. So just get, getting used to changing the conversation so we can all be, yeah. be safer and more aware. And that's all I got head on a swivel. All right. And that's it. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. So now let's get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by or about any people of color, LGBTQ folks or any other marginalized groups um, or any true crime goodies And um, this is kind of a both. Oh, cool. This is a podcast called Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff. And it's a podcast by a trans woman who talks about the oppression and the horrible crimes and crimes against humanity committed throughout history and the dope people who fought against it. So it's wherever you get your podcasts. What
0: do nice. You got? Subscribed. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to shout out this is a true crime goodie. Mm-hmm. It's a podcast called True Crime Binge. Oh. Yeah. So uh, host Bob Ruff invites other true crime content creators on the show each week to share their origin stories, break down cases they've covered, and give you a little taste of their podcasts. And uh, we talked to him this morning. We did. And it was yeah. such an
1: honor. And,
0: and um, it was really fun. <laughs> yeah. And
1: uh, yeah, so that is that is a great podcast. And um, he's had some really fantastic guests, including Al. Ab- and Jason Flom from Wrongful Convici- Convictions and Maggie Freeling and just um, uh, across the whole spectrum of this yeah big wide genre that we inhabit. So yeah, yes. so check it out, check it out. So that is um, two podcasts, uh, cool people who did cool stuff and True Crime Binge wherever you get your podcasts. Boy, oh boy, that's it for today, y'all. But in the meantime, Beth, where can the people find us?
0: Our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join our discussion group on Facebook at Fruit Loops Pod Discussion. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through Patreon. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. Oh, yes.
1: Now, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.